Section 38 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11, Calvin and the Reformed Church by the Reverend A.M. Fairbairn, Part 2. The events of the next few months are obscure, but we know enough to see how forces internal and external were working towards change in the second half of 1532 and the earlier half of 1533 calvin was in orleans studying teaching practicing the law and acting in the university as proctor for the picard nation then he went to noyon and in october he was once more in paris the capital was agitated francis was absent and his sister margaret of navarre held her court there, favoring the new doctrines, encouraging the preachers, the chief among them being her own almoner, Gerard Roussel. Two letters of Calvin to Francis Daniel belong to this date and place, and in them we find a changed note. One speaks of the troublous times, and the other narrates two events. First, it describes a play, pungent with gall and vinegar, which the students had performed in the College of Navarre to satirize the Queen, and secondly, the action of certain factious theologians who had prohibited Margaret's mirror of a sinful soul. She had complained to the King, and he had intervened. The matter came before the university, and Nicholas Copp, the rector, had spoken strongly against the arrogant doctors and in defense of the Queen, mother of all the virtues and of all good learning. Leclerc, a parish priest, the author of the mischief, defended his performance as a task to which he had been formally appointed, praising the king, the queen as woman, and as author, contrasting her book with such an obscene production as Pantagruel, and finally saying that the book had been published without the approval of the faculty and was set aside only as liable to suspicion. Two or three days later, on November 1st, 1533, came the famous rectoral address which Calvin wrote, and Cop revised and delivered, and which shows how far the humanist had traveled since April 4th, 1532, the date of the De Clementia. He is now alive to the religious question, though he has not carried it to its logical and practical conclusion. Two fresh influences have evidently come into his life the New Testament of Erasmus, and certain sermons by Luther. The exordium of the address reproduces, almost literally, some sentences from Erasmus's Periclesis, including those which unfold his idea of the Philosophia Christiania, while the body of it repeats Luther's exposition of the Beatitudes and his distinction between law and gospel with the involved doctrines of grace and faith. Yet, Ave Gratia Plena, is retained in the exordium, and at the end the peacemakers are praised, who follow the example of Christ and contend not with the sword, but with the word of truth. This address enables us to seize Calvin in the very act and article of change. He has come under a double influence. Erasmus has compelled him to compare the ideal of Christ with the church of his own day, and Luther has given him a notion of grace which has convinced his reason and taken possession of his imagination. He has thus ceased to be a humanist and a papist, 
but has not yet become a reformer, and a reformer was precisely what his conscience, his country, and his reason compelled him to become. Francis was flagrantly immoral, but a fanatic in religion, and mercy was not a virtue congenial to either church or state. Calvin had seen the Protestants from within. He knew their honesty, their honor, the purity of their motives, and the integrity of their lives, and he judged, as a jurist would, that a man who had all the virtues of citizenship ought not to be oppressed and treated as unfit for civil office, or even as a criminal by the state. This is no conjecture, for it is confirmed by the testimony he bears to the influence exercised over him by the martyred Etienne de la Forge. He thus saw that a changed mind meant a changed religion, and a changed religion a change of abode. Cop had to flee from Paris, and so had Calvin. In the May of 1534, he went to Noyon, laid down his offices, was imprisoned, liberated, and while there, he seems to have finally renounced Catholicism. But he feared the forces of disorder which lurked in Protestantism and which seemed embodied in the Anabaptists. Hence, at Orléans, he composed a treatise against one of their favorite beliefs, the sleep of the soul between death and judgment. Conscience, personal being, was in itself too precious, and in the sight of God, too sacred, to be allowed to suffer even a temporary lapse. But to serve the cause he loved was impossible, with the stake waiting for him, its fire scorching his face, and kindly friends endangered by his presence. And so, in the winter of 1534, he retired from France and settled at Basel. Aeneas Silvius had once described Basel as a city which venerated images but cared little for science and had no wish to know letters, and when he became pope, he found there a university which effected a more marvelous change than he could have anticipated. Erasmus chose Basel as his residence from 1514 to 1529, and here his New Testament and his editions of the great Latin fathers were printed by John Froben who joined to the soul of an artist the enterprise of a merchant. When Froben died, Erasmus forsook Basil, but as the end drew near, he came back, just as Calvin was finishing his institutio, to die in the city which had been the scene of his most arduous and faithful labors. And if the zeal for learning at Basil was strong, the zeal for religion was no less. As early as 1517, Capito had refused to celebrate the Mass and had preached in the spirit of Luther. Here, Oikolampadius had learned from humanism a sweet reasonableness that won the respect of Erasmus, yet ideas so radical that they placed him beside Zwingli, at Marburg, and made him so preach against the images which the city used to venerate that the rabble hastened to insult and break them. Erasmus, who described the event in more than one letter, marveled in his satirical way that not a solitary saint lifted a blessed finger to work a protecting or retributory miracle that should stay or avenge the damage. Calvin did not reach the city which Oikolampadius had changed till three years after his death, but the reformer found it guided by men who were just as congenial. Oswald Myconius, the chief pastor and preacher, who even amid notable differences, continued ever a personal friend and admirer. Simon Grineus, a learned Grecian, with whom he then and later discussed, as he himself tells us, how best to study, to translate, and to interpret the scriptures. Sebastian Munster, professor of Hebrew, 
just seeing through the press his Biblia Hebraica praised in public, as Germanorium Estras a Strabo, and affectionately known in private as the Rabbi, a master at whose feet Calvin could sit without shame. Thomas Platter, once a poor and vagrant scholar, then professor of Greek, but now a printer from whose press the Institutio was soon to issue, though owing to financial straits not so soon as its anxious author would have liked. Besides the residents, famous visitors came to Basel, from Zurich, Henry Bollinger, who was there just at this time discussing the terms of the first Helvetic Confession, and twenty-one years later reminded Calvin of their meeting, and Conrad Pelican, who saw the dying Erasmus and heard great things of a certain John Calvin, a Frenchman, who had dared to write plain and solid truth to the French king. Now a city where Protestantism reigned, where learning flourished, and where men so unlike as Erasmus and Farel, the fervid preacher of reform, could do their work unhindered, were certain to make a deep impression on a fugitive harassed and expatriated on account of religion, and the impression it made can be read in the Christiane Religionis Institutio, and especially in the prefatory letter to Francis I. The Institutio is Calvin's positive interpretation of the Christian religion. The letter is learned, eloquent, elegant, dignified, the address of a subject to his sovereign, yet of a subject who knows that his place in the state is as legal, though not as authoritative, as the sovereign's. It throbs with a noble indignation against injustice and with a noble enthusiasm for freedom and truth. It is one of the great epistles of the world, a splendid apology for the oppressed, an arraignment of the oppressors. It does not implore toleration as a concession, but claims freedom as a right. Its author is a young man of but twenty-six, yet he speaks with the gravity of age. He tells the king that his first duty is to be just, that to punish unheard is but to inflict violence and perpetrate fraud. Those for whom he speaks are, though simple and godly men, yet charged with crimes that, were they true, ought to condemn them to a thousand fires and gibbets. These charges the king is bound to investigate, for he is a minister of God, and if he fails to serve the God whose minister he is, then he is a robber and no king. The lowliness of the men has as its counterpart the majesty of their beliefs, for the sake of which ali nostrum vinculis constringuntur, ali virgis cedantur, ali in ludibrium circumducuntur, ali proscribuntur, ali Sevisimi, torquentur, ali, furga, alabunter, omne, rerum, agastia, premimur, diris execrationibus, devalvimur, maledictus, laceramur, indignissimus, modus tractamur. Then he asks, Who are our accusers? And he turns on the priests like a new Erasmus, who does not, like the old, delight in satire for its own sake or in a literature which scourges men by holding up the mirror to vice, but who feels the sublimity of virtue so deeply that witticisms at the expense of vice are abhorrent to him. He takes up the charges in detail. It is said that the doctrine is new, doubtful, and uncertain, unconfirmed by miracles, opposed to the fathers, an ancient custom, schismatical, and productive of schism, and that its fruits are sex, seditions, license, 
on no point is he so emphatic as the repudiation of the personal charges. The people he pleads for have never raised their voice in faction or sought to subvert law and order. They fear God sincerely and worship him in truth, praying even in exile for the royal person and house. The book which this address to the king introduces is a sketch or program of reform in religion. The first edition of the Institutio is distinguished from all later editions by the emphasis it lays not on dogma, but on morals, on worship, and on polity. Calvin conceives the gospel as a new law which ought to be embodied in a new life, individual and social. What came later to be known as Calvinism may be stated in an occasional sentence or implied in a paragraph, but it is not the substance or determinative idea of the book. The problem discussed has been set by the studies and the experience of the author. He has read the New Testament as a humanist, learned in the law, and he has been startled by the contrast between its ideal and the reality which confronts him, and he proceeds in a thoroughly judicial fashion, just as Tertullian before him, and as Grotius and Selden after him. Without a document, he can decide nothing. He needs a written law or actual custom, and his book falls into divisions which these suggest. Hence, his first chapter is concerned with duty, or conduct as prescribed by the Ten Commandments, his second with faith as contained in the apostolic symbol, his third with prayer as fixed by the words of Christ, his fourth with the sacrament as given in the scriptures, his fifth with the false sacraments as defined by tradition and enforced by Catholic custom, and his sixth with Christian liberty or the relation of the ecclesiastical and civil authorities. But though the book is, as compared with what it became later, limited in scope and contents, the last edition, which left the author's hand in 1559, had grown from a work in six chapters to one in four books and eighty chapters. Yet its constructive power, its critical force, its large outlook impressed the student. We have here none of Luther's scholasticism or of Melanchthon's deft manipulation of incompatible elements, but we have the first thoughts on religion of a mind trained by ancient literature to the criticism of life. In the second edition, published in 1539, his old admirations reassert themselves. Plato is there described as of all philosophers, religiosissimus a maxim sobrius, and Aristotle, Themistius, Cicero, Sinisa, and other classical writers are quoted in a way that finds a parallel in no theological book of that period. But in this first edition, he is too much in earnest and writes too directly to adorn his pages with classical references, though in his style, in his argument, in his deduction of all things from God, and in his correlation of our knowledge of God and of man, in his emphasis on morals, in his sense for conduct and love of freedom, the classical spirit is living and active. Thus, in his ideas of Christian liberty, we can trace the student of Sinisa, as in his appreciation of law and order, we see the Roman jurist. He dislikes equally tyranny and license. Liberty is said to consist in three things, freedom from the law as a means of acceptance with God, the spontaneous obedience of the justified to the divine will, and freedom either to observe or neglect those external things which are in themselves indifferent. He specially insists on this last, 
since without it there will be no end to superstition and the conscience will enter a long and inextricable labyrinth whence escape will be difficult the church is the elect people of god and must if it is to do its work in the world obey him but it can obey only as it has control over its own destinies and authority over its own members it will not err in matters of opinion if it is guided by the holy spirit and judges according to the scriptures magistrates are ordained of god and ought to be obeyed even though wicked but here a most significant exception is introduced god is king of kings when he opens his mouth he alone is to be heard it were worse than foolish to seek to please men by offending him we are subject to our rulers but only in him if they command what he has forbidden we must fear god and disobey the king the institutio bears the date mensi martio anno 1536 but calvin without waiting till his book was on the market made a hurried journey to ferrera whose duchess renee a daughter of louis twelfth stood in active sympathy with the reformers the reasons for this brief visit are very obscure but it may have been undertaken in the hope of mitigating by the help of rene the severity of the persecutions in france on his return calvin ventured tradition says to noyon probably for the sake of family affairs but he certainly reached paris and while in the second half of july making his way into germany he arrived at geneva an old friend possibly louis de Tillet, discovered him and told farel and farel in sore straits for a helper besought him and indeed in the name of the almighty commanded him to stay calvin was reluctant for he was reserved and shy and conceived his vocation to be the scholars rather than the preachers but the entreatises of farel half tearful half minatory prevailed and thus calvin's connection with geneva began with the ancient and medieval history of geneva we have here no concern it will be enough if we briefly indicate those peculiarities of its constitution which gave calvin his opportunity and so much of its history as will explain the condition in which he found it ethnogeographically geneva was connected with both the teutonic and the latin races by language it was french by religious interest and associations italian by political instincts and affinities swiss by commercial industrial genius german in the thirteenth century its civil superior had been a count of burgundy in the fifteenth century and early sixteenth he had been long superseded by the duke of savoy and the supersession was inevitable for geneva occupied a corner of the savoyard country and as an old chronicler has it the bells of the city were heard by more savoyards than citizens its constitution once hierarchical feudal and democratic so balanced parties whose interests were seldom compatible as to put a premium on agitation and intrigue these parties were the bishop the vicedom or civil overlord and the citizens the bishop was the sovereign of the city elected originally by the clergy and laity jointly later by the cathedral chapter though customs significant of the older time continued to be observed thus the mere vote of the chapter did not constitute the bishop lord of the state the election had further to be endorsed by the citizens who accompanied the bishop in solemn procession to the cathedral where before the altar 
and in the presence of clergy and people he swore on the open missal that he would preserve their laws their liberties and their privileges as sovereign he issued the coinage imposed the customs was general of the forces and supreme judge in both civil and ecclesiastical causes in criminal cases he exercised the prerogative of mercy and endorsed or remitted penalties the cathedral chapter formed his council and represented him in his absence it constituted a permanent aristocracy and sat as a sort of spiritual peerage in the city council certain castles and domains were assigned to the bishop in order that he might be as sovereign in appearance and in dignity as he was in law and in fact the vicedom was captain of the church commissioned to repress violence in the city and to defend it from external attacks to act in the less important civil and criminal cases and to carry out the penalties which the law pronounced he was not reckoned a citizen and stood sponsor for all the foreigners who enjoyed the hospitality of geneva while in theory the bishop's vassal yet as a matter of fact and for reasons which neither he nor the city was allowed to forget the office had become hereditary in the house of savoy but as the duke could not himself reside his duties were discharged by two lieutenants whose functions were carefully defined and delimited in a word the civil overlord was the minister of his ecclesiastical superior but the superior tended to become the puppet of the minister apart from both stood the citizens in an order of their own the general council of the city composed of the whole of the citizens i e all the heads of families met at the summons of the great bell twice each year to transact business affecting the community as such to elect the four syndics and the treasurer to conclude alliances to proclaim laws to fix the prices of wine and of grain the syndics represented the municipal independence as against the sovereignty of the bishop and the power of the vicedom to them the greater criminal jurisdiction was entrusted and they were responsible for good order within the city from sunset to sunrise they were assisted by the smaller council composed of twenty qualified citizens and if any event too responsible for it to handle occurred a council of sixty could be called which was composed of the representatives of the several districts and the most experienced and respectable citizens later and just before the reformation the council of two hundred was established in order that geneva might be assimilated to the swiss cantons whose help it invoked a state so constituted and governed could hardly escape from the consciousness that it was a church or feel otherwise than as if the ecclesiastic at its head made its acts and legislation ecclesiastical the spiritual offices were made secular without the secular offices becoming spiritual in other words the clergy were assimilated to the laity while the laity did not correspond to the clerical ideal the priests dressed and armed like the people played and fought with them behaved more like examples of worldliness than teachers of the gospel in a word sinned and lived like citizens of geneva the decay of clerical morals was not peculiar to geneva though it must be noted as a main factor of the situation there camp schult here a reluctant witness 
declares that the bishop had become a humiliation to the church and a degradation to the clergy, and he cites the case of the old priest who, when ordered to put away his mistress, replied that he was quite ready to obey, provided all his brethren were treated with the same severity. But the Constitution acted on the collective even more subtly than on the personal consciousness. The council legislated, disciplined, and excommunicated, as if the state were a church, or, what may be the same thing, as if there were no church in the state. The extent to which a man could sin and yet remain a citizen was a matter of statutory regulation. No citizen was allowed to keep more than one mistress, and every convicted adulterer was banished. The prostitutes had a quarter where they dwelt, special clothing where they wore, and a queen who was responsible for the good order of her community. The clergy were a kind of moral police, responsible for the citizens and to the city, and so their deterioration meant a moral decline. But a more obvious and, so far as our immediate point is concerned, a more serious consequence was this. Every ecclesiastical question tended to become civil, and every civil question to become ecclesiastical. A constitution has a way of working in a fashion either better or worse than, considered a priori, would have seemed possible, and this because the people are ever a greater factor of harmony or disorder than the laws they live under. Hence, so long as Geneva was inspired by one spirit, the anomalies of the constitution did not breed discontent, but when new energies and new ambitions awoke, these anomalies became fruitful of disaster to the state. So long as the bishop and the people had common aims and interests, loyalty to both was easy. But the moment the interests of the bishop looked in an opposite direction from that of the people, the situation became difficult. For loyalty to the bishop as head of the state meant loyalty to the church of which he was head. But loyalty to the people as the chief constitute of the state became disloyalty to the bishop as head of both church and city. How this situation arose in Geneva, what is signified and whither it tended subsequent events will show. The determining factors of the situation were thus two, the bishop and the duke. The bishop stood for an ideal which he was not always either able or willing to realize. The duke, who was his vice-lord, stood for an interest whose strength grew with its years and created the energy needed for its own realization. The function of a bishop's vicar did not satisfy the house of Savoy. It wanted to be master in its own right and sit in Geneva, facing the ultramontane kingdoms, as it sat in Turin and faced the cismontane principalities and cities. And so began the game of intrigue in which the house has always been a skilled performer, and the bishop was played off against the people, and the people against the bishop. But it is harder to capture a whole city than a single person. It is easier to annex an exalted office than to control a whole population. A multitude of impulsive souls singly accessible to incalculable yet imperious ideas. So the house concentrated itself on the bishop, intrigued with the chapter which elected, intrigued with Rome which approved, 
prevailed with both, and got its creatures appointed, men who would do its will and forget their office and its duties. A chronicler says that Duke and Bishop, like Herod and Pilate, stood united against the city. The bishop, he means, is the bastard of Savoy, appointed, 1513, a man of notoriously immoral conduct, and in everything the unscrupulous instrument of the ducal policy. He lived ignobly, but served his house as best he could, and in a moment of remorse on his deathbed in 1522, he admonished his successor, Pierre de la Baume, thus, Do not, when thou art bishop of Geneva, walk in my footsteps, but defend the privileges of the church and the freedom of the city. Pierre, of course, promised, and for a while remembered his promise, but soon forgot it, neglected Geneva, alienated its citizens, lived isolated among them, absented himself, and allowed the fruit to ripen which the house of Savoy hoped soon to pluck and eat. This policy was attended with mixed results, some of which may be described as foreseen and desired by the ducal house, others as unforeseen and undesired, yet inevitable. We may reckon in the former class the weakening of the episcopal authority, the isolation of the bishop, and his inability to stand alone, which meant his increased dependence on the strong arm of the duke, and in the latter class the effect upon the people and the uprising of fit and fearless leaders. Geneva might abut upon Savoyard territory, but its citizens were not Savoyards, and did not intend to become what they were not. Around them was Swiss freedom, before them the French soil and spirit. They breathed the air, partook of the temper, lived by the help of both, and they would be neither alienated from their kin nor cease to be masters of their own destinies. They were not dissatisfied with their church nor with their city or its laws. They knew what they owed to the bishop, how defenseless they would have been without him, and what immunities his presence and influence had secured but they would not, because of past favors, submit to present wrongs, especially to the wrong which the freeborn man most resents, the loss of his freedom. Hence, Geneva read the situation with other eyes than the House of Savoy, and resolved not to change its religion, but to preserve its liberty. Its leaders were men like Philibert Bartholier, a genuine Genevan, self-indulgent, not free from vice, but brave, prudent, patriotic, by his death helping to redeem the city he loved. Byzantine, Hughes, a statesman, pure and high-minded, incapable of meanness or cowardice, a devout Catholic, yet a strenuous Republican, whose policy was to check the Savoyard by a Swiss confederacy or a joint citizenship with the Swiss allies. Francois de Bonavard, a bot of St. Victor, a humanist, with the gift of speech and of letters, a kind of provincial Erasmus, with a graphic pen and a faculty for witty epigram, yet with a courage that neither the fear nor the experience of a prison could damp. The patriots were known as Huguenots, Confederates, men who had bound themselves by an oath to stand together and serve the common cause. 
This voyard party were termed Mamelukes because, as Bonavard tells us, they surrendered freedom and the public weal that they might submit to tyranny, as the Mamelukes denied Christ that they might follow Muhammad. The battle was fought with splendid tenacity. The patriots, as became loyal Catholics, first tried to coerce the bishop by appeals to Rome and Vienne, and failed. Left face to face with Savoy, they appealed to their Swiss neighbors, Bern and Freiburg, proposed to them a joint citizenship, and long negotiated concerning it in vain. Bern hung back, for, progressive and Protestant, it did not desire that the defeat of the duke should be to the advantage of the bishop, who at last himself took the decisive step. On August 20, 1530, Pierre de la Baume proclaimed the Genevans rebels and called upon the Savoyard host to put down the rebellion. Bern and Freiburg took the field and the emancipation of Geneva began. Yet it was only a beginning. The ecclesiastical question was involved in the political, though the political had till now concealed the religious. But the revolt against the bishop could not but become a revolt against the church. In other times it might have been the reverse, but not now. Reform was in the air. The preachers had long stormed at the gates of the city, and they had remained closed. But with Byrne helping in the front, they could be kept fast no longer. They were open, and Guglielme Farrell, fiery and eloquent in speech, and indomitable in spirit, preached in his fearless way. On February 8, 1534, the public opinion of Geneva pronounced for the Bernese joint citizenship, and therefore for the Reformation, and thus ended the reign of the bishop and the chances of the House of Savoy. On May 21, 1536, the citizens of Geneva swore that they would live according to the holy evangelical law and word of God, and two months later, Calvin's connection with the city began. Calvin's life from this point onwards falls into three parts. His first stay in Geneva from July 1536 to March 1538, his residence in Strasbourg from September 1538 to September 1541, and his second stay in Geneva from the last date till his death, May 27, 1564. In the first period, he, in company with Farrell, made an attempt to organize the church and reform the mind and manners of Geneva, and failed. His exile, formally voted by the council, was the penalty of his failure. In the second period, he was professor of theology and French preacher at Strasbourg, a trusted divine and advisor, a delegate to the Protestant churches of Germany, which he learned to know better, making the acquaintance of Melanchthon and becoming more appreciative of Luther. At Strasbourg, some of his best literary work was done. His letter to Cardinal Sadoletto, in its way his most perfect production, his commentary on the Romans, a treatise on the Lord's Supper, the second Latin and the first French edition of his Institutio. In the third period, he introduced and completed his legislation at Geneva, taught, preached, and published there, watched the churches everywhere, and conducted the most extensive correspondence of his day. In these 28 years, he did a work which changed the face of Christendom. 
it had been a subject of perhaps equal reproach among his enemies and praised by his friends that, as Beza says, Calvin, in doctrine made scarcely any change. For a young man at twenty-six to reach his final conclusions in the realms of thought and belief, especially after a radical revolution of mind, would be matter of congratulation for his enemies rather than for his admirers. But the judgment rests on a double mistake, biographical and historical. As a matter of fact, few men may have changed less, but few also have developed more. Every crisis in his career taught him something, and so enhanced his capacity. His studies of Stoicism showed him the value of morals, and he learned how to emphasize the sterner ethical qualities as well as the humaner and the more clement by the side of the higher public virtues. His early humanism made him a scholar and an exegete, a master of elegant Latinity, of lucid and incisive speech, of a graphic pen and historical imagination. His juristic studies gave him an idea of law, through which he interpreted the more abstract notions of theology and the love of order which compelled him to organize his church. His imagination, playing upon the primitive Christian literature, helped him to see the religion Jesus instituted as Jesus himself saw it, while the forces visible around him, the superstitions, the regnant and unreproved vices, the people so quickly sinning and so easily forgiven, the relics so innumerable and so fictitious, the acts and articles of worship and especially the sacraments defied and turned into substitutes for deity, induced him to judge the system that claimed to be the sole interpreter and representative of Christ as a crafty compound of falsehood and truth. His knowledge that the system had profited by men like Erasmus, whose wit made havoc of clerical sins and monkish superstition and Romish errors, and who yet conformed, or men, like Jared Russell, who preached what he himself and they thought the gospel, and who yet consented to hold office in the Catholic Church, begat in him the belief that only by separation and negation could reformation be accomplished. His friendship with the good and simple, those who had tried to realize this religion of Jesus, and his knowledge of the tyrannies, the miseries, the martyrdoms which they had in consequence endured, persuaded him that his duty as an honest man was to side with the oppressed, whom he admired against the oppressors, whose ways and policy he detested. His experiences as a teacher and preacher of the new faith, especially at Geneva, where he tells us he found at his first coming preachings and tumults, breaking and burning of images, but no reformation, showed him that individual men and even a whole society might profess the Reformed faith without being Reformed in character. Out of these experiences came his master problem, namely, by what means could we best secure the expression of a changed faith in a changed life? Or, in other words, how could the church be made not simply an institution for the worship of God, but an agency for the making of men fit to worship him? His attempt to solve this problem constitutes his chief title to a place in the history of religion and civilization. It means that Calvin was greater as a legislator than as a theologian, 
that we have less cause to be grateful to him for the system called Calvinism than for the church that he organized. In other words, his polity is a more perfect expression of the man than his theology, though his theology was the point where he was most vulnerable, and where, therefore, he was most fiercely, not to say ferociously, attacked. The foes born in his own household, men like Castellio or Bolsec, took the divine decrees as the spot where they could strike most fatally at him and his preeminence. The Jesuits developed their doctrine in explicit antithesis to his, and the Lutherans, when they wished to discredit his views on the Lord's Supper, thought they could do it most effectively by criticizing the absolute predestination. The sects that rose within the Reformed Church, such as the Socinian and the Remonstrant, justified their schism as a protest against views which they described as equally dishonoring to God and belittling to man. But though Calvin's theology occasioned the hottest and bitterest controversies known to Christian history, yet it is here that his mind is least original and his ideas are most clearly derivative. Without Augustine, we should never have had Calvinism, which is but the principles of the anti-Pelagian treatises developed, systematized, and applied. There are indeed two points of difference between them. Augustine disguised his positions in a criticism of hated and feared sectaries, but Calvin stated his in their severe and colossal nakedness as the sole truth which scripture had revealed to men. Yet Augustine affirms and argues his doctrines with a breadth and a positive harshness which we do not find in Calvin. On the contrary, there is evidence that while the system held and awed Calvin's reason, it yet did not win his heart. That it was taught by the greatest father of the church was a reason that appealed to him as a scholar. That this father found it in Paul was a more cogent reason still. For thus it appealed to him as a thinker whose ultimate authority was the word of God. And on this point we have incidental evidence. In August 1539, Calvin wrote the preface to the second edition of his Institutio, where the doctrines of grace and sin occupy for the first time their determinative position in a system, and in October of the same year he published his commentary on Romans. It seems, therefore, as if the greater prominence that he now gave to the doctrines which we have come to think most characteristic of him was due to his closer study of Paul as interpreted by Augustine, and this system helped him to do two things, to explain his own as a normal human experience, and to face undismayed the strength and the terrors of an infallible church. These two positions are affirmed and coordinated in a splendid passage in the letter to Sadaletto, published also in 1539 in September, just between the Institutio and the Commentary, which tells of his vocation by God and of his consequent right to speak in the name of him who had put his word in his mouth and written his law upon his conscience. God had called him and laid upon him a duty which he could not evade without defying God. But here emerges another point of distinction from Augustine. Calvin conceived that God spoke to him directly without any intermediate person or institution. 
Augustine's theology was absolute, but his theory of the church was conditional, and thus the one qualified the other. The God whom the thinker conceived was modified by the God of whom the priest was the representative and mouthpiece. It is the essence of the priestly idea to manipulate and minister the conditions on which God finds access to men, and men gain access to God. Hence, so long as Augustine's theology was embedded in a sacerdotal system, the system softened the theology, the thought was accommodated to the institution, the institution was not subdued to the likeness of the thought. But Calvin rejected the church of Augustine, and took over his later intellectual system in all its naked severity. The sin of man confronted the grace of God. Man, sinful by nature, could do no right. God, infinite in majesty and in holiness, could do no wrong. Man was born in sin, his nature was corrupt, and as his nature was his actions must be. If then he was to be saved, God must save him, and, as God's will was gracious, saving was as natural to him as sinning was to man. Hence, we could contribute nothing towards our own salvation. God did it all. We had no merit, and he had all the glory. In a system so conceived, there was no room for the priest, his prayers and sacrifices, his masses and absolutions, his shrines and relics and articles of worship were but the impertinences of ephemeral and feeble man in the face of eternal potency. Calvin knew well the sublimity of the system which he expounded, but he could have wished it to be more pitiful. He did not love to think of the innumerable millions of the heathen with their infant children ordained to everlasting death. The decree that fixed the number alike of the saved and the lost was to him an awful decree but he could not look towards the Alps without feeling how closely the sublime and the awful were allied. And if the sublimity of earth was terrible, how much more terrible must be the majesty of God? But if he is so august, must we not labor to attain the dignity of moral manhood, the only dignity which it becomes him to recognize? End of section 38. Read by David Ronald.